Three, two, one. What I figured out was that this zero sum is really our biggest enemy, right? It's this idea that progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other, that there's an us and a them, and whatever's good for them is bad for us. And from an economist point of view, the zero sum is a total myth. It's a total lie. Like, there's not an us and a them within an economy. If you want to score more points, you want everyone on the same team to be able to be on the field and doing their best. The problem with, with racism in America is that um, many people believe that there is an us and a them, that we're not on the same team. They resent somebody on the other team doing well. Heather McGee is a brilliant strategist, and the strategies she designs and promotes are around solutions to inequality in America. She has a new book called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, and How We Can Prosper Together. I learned about her through her 2020 TED Talk, Racism Has a Cost for Everyone. It reached over a million views in just two months online. Heather has testified in Congress, drafted legislation, and developed strategies for organizations and campaigns that won changes to improve the lives of millions of people. And she's a people person. She really, really cares about what she does because she has a personal story tied to it too. For nearly two decades, she helped build the nonpartisan think and do tank, Demos. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met and an incredible teacher. And she does a lot of teaching on this podcast. So I hope you come with an open heart, open mind, and maybe a pen and paper. It'll be worth it. Heather, thank you so much for joining us for Podcast Noir for this storytelling session. Well, first question, how is your heart these days? Mm. You know, it's full. I mean, this this has been a... A really rough year um, for anybody who's an empathetic person, right? I mean, just there's just been so much suffering and loss, so much needless loss, um, so much stress. Um, my own little little corner of the world, which is my husband and my son and my extended family, you know, we've been okay, um, but I, I I'm such a feeler of of yep of what's going on in the world that it's been it's you know it's been heavy um for the past six weeks I've been promoting this book and telling the story of the some of us to as many people as will listen and that has been a honestly a very good space to be in because the book is ultimately hopeful and the and even though it's a somewhat controversial argument right the idea that racism has a cost for everyone um People are really receiving it, and it feels good to to know that I spent all these years going around the country talking to people, and and that those stories are are finding welcome audiences right now. It also helps that you are an amazing storyteller, and you're putting to words the feelings that so many people have been feeling, mm, thank and you. confirming their experiences and giving space for them. So thank you. I've been reading so many of your stories compiled into one new book called The Sum of Us. And not only has it been eye-opening, but as I've read it, it has just consistently made so much sense. And you've answered so many questions that 
I have continuously had in my mind. But don't you know that this is hurting you? But don't you know that this isn't good for us? And I say the word us kind of broadly because you talk about the zero-sum theory with racism and how there is this us versus them notion. And we have consistently talked about this us versus them notion in so many different ways, whether it be they don't want to pass policies that are going to be helping us or they're causing the problem. I call it like the capital T they because we never really know who they are. But when you're referring to it in your book, who is the us and who is the they? Mm. Well, thank you. First of all, Nora, it's so good to be with you. Um, I did write The Sum of Us to answer questions, to make it feel like <laughs> there's just, right? I mean, the, the book opens with a question, right? It says, you know, have you ever wondered um, why it seems like Americans can't have nice things? And, can't and, have and nice I wrote, things. <laughs> I wrote the book to answer that question. Like, what gives? Why are we yeah. so dysfunctional? Why does it feel like we're not on the same team? Why do we prey on and exploit one another? Why do we destroy our own nest? You know, why is it that there's just so much dysfunction and cruelty and competition um, within a people who are supposed to be, you know, in the same shared project and who are ultimately united. neighbors? Yeah. So the what I figured out was that this zero sum is really our biggest enemy, right? And it's this idea that progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other, that there's an us and a them, and whatever's good for them is bad for us. And, you know, I come at this, Noor, from an economics perspective. That's the field that I worked in for nearly 20 years, trying to advance policy solutions to our biggest economic problems. And and from an economist point of view, the zero sum is a total myth. It's a total lie. Like there's not an us and a them within an economy. If you want to score more points, you want everyone on the same team to be able to be on the field and doing their best, right? You you, you cheer your fellow players, you know, being in good shape. Yep. And um, and yet the problem with, with racism in America is that um, many people believe that there is an us and them, that we're not on the same team. And so they they resent the idea of somebody on the other team, on the other side, doing well. And they don't want them to have anything, um, even if it might help them themselves, they don't want the people that they're in competition with to, to get uh, a leg up or uh, any kind of help or support. And you share so many examples of that in your book, including the story in Montgomery, Alabama, where there was a swimming pool for only white people. And then when segregation was no longer, black people would have been allowed to swim in the swimming pool. They just shut the swimming pool completely. They just eliminated that from their community. Mm -hmm. And even hearing that story isn't doing something like that, taking a stance like that going to only build your anger and animosity in your heart because you're going to eventually blame the people who you didn't want to benefit from for mm -hmm. the reason that something like this is being taken away from you when they had mm -hmm. nothing to do with it at all. Mm -hmm. And who benefits from that level of animosity? No, that's so insightful. Um, and yes, I'm a policy wonk, but I, I also... <laughs> Um, the sum of us is really an exercise in empathy for me. I tried to yes. do that throughout the book, right? Trying to put totally. myself in, in the shoes of other folks. And you, you really hit on something, right? This idea that, in fact, when the, when the public goods, 
um, are lost in the phenomenon I refer to as the drained pool, um, both literally in the story that yeah. you just told, which was replicated <laughs> across the country, and then sort of as a metaphor for um, a period of time in which our country had once been very generous to its people and the government really invested in and supported um, a high standard of living for people but in, in an exclusively racialized way and, and in a way that excluded black families. Um, and then once the civil rights movement said, okay, let's, let's expand that circle of belonging to include all of us who, who contribute to this country's prosperity, um, that was when you really saw that rift. You saw towns draining their public swimming pools. There was lots of instances of, of closing public schools and just a general shift among the majority of white people um, away from the kind of generous formula of public goods and public benefits. And, you know, I think about, Nor, what you just said about sort of, of course, your average white person in a town that drained its public pool rather than integrate it is going to end up resenting the black people who, of course, never yeah. even got to swim, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about, like, who really made that decision? The decision wasn't a public referendum, right? Um, and, you know, in a lot of the interviews about this period of time, you had all these children who talked about, white children who talked about when that happened as being very traumatic and, and unexplainable. It was the elites in the town, right? It was the lawmakers, it was the city council, it was the business elites, right? It's people who had the power to do such a thing, right? To just like, you know, in Montgomery, for example, they closed the entire parks and recreation department for a decade, right? It wasn't just the pool, it was the entire system. And so that is a thread throughout the some of us is this idea that it's it's the elites who make these decisions. And so what that meant, Nor, was that if you were a middle-class white person, you could stretch and save up and or go into debt and build a backyard pool for your family right, to swim exactly. in, right? Um, and then they had all these new private swim clubs. And if you had $400 a year to spend on a private swim club membership, you could do that. But if you were just a regular person who didn't have a lot of money, extra money lying around, it means you really lost out. And and also the, mm. the fabric of the community lost out, right? There was a sense of we had these public goods, people would meet, fall in love. It was sort of this common gathering place. And that was lost. And so as so often happens with drained pool politics and really it's been the, the drained pool politics has really been the overarching politics for all of my life and yours in the United States. What ends up happening is that if you're rich, you can figure out a way, right? What once was a public good becomes a private luxury. But um, the only people who really end up benefiting are those who are very wealthy and very comfortable. And it creates a lot of resentment and animosity as people recognize that life has gotten harder and they don't know why. And so they blame it. Politicians tell them to blame it on black and brown people. And so they do. You're absolutely right. The elite, the wealthy are the people who are benefiting. But the way that it benefits it's just so fake because, <laughs> and this is obviously metaphorical for so many things, we close the pool and we blame it on black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And then we set this standard that the ideal situation is that you get a private pool or you can join a private pool club. There's this hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It's not only about closing the pool. It's about reinforcing a certain class of people in a community so that people can aspire to that. This mm -hmm. aspiration mindset that comes from scarcity mm -hmm. all the time is 
what America has been built on. The Constitution was written by white landowning men for white landowning men and to essentially get everyone, even those who could never become that because they weren't born into those bodies, to aspire to something that they would never be able to attain because it made them feel better about themselves. Are people doing things like this? Are politicians doing things like this? That 1% to make themselves feel better? <laughs> Making yourselves feel better is a, it's a really, um, it, there, yeah, I mean, basically, right? Um, there's a chapter in the book called The Hidden Wound where I dig into the kind of psychology of racism and the morality of racism and why it is, and so much of it, um, so much of the sort of psychological and emotional dimensions of racism are about making yourself feel better, right? About justifying mm -hmm. your position in an unequal society, about finding ways to make sense of a world that has so much hierarchy and so much suffering. And so if you get these facts and you, you believe that you're a good person, then what do you do, right? You make reasons why the people who are suffering are bad people or have made bad choices, choices that you would never have made in the same circumstances, right? Because you're different, right? That's where race comes in, right? You're different. There's something about them that is different than us. Um, so the desire to sort of make whole what is a broken society, a broken life, a broken logic, a broken morality um, is, is really old. I mean, take, for example, the fundamental quandary that the Christian church faced in the era of colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade, right? They, they had this belief, this teaching that every human being was made in the image of God. And so how could you do these unconscionable, exploitative things to people who are made in the image of God? And so what the organized Christian church did in Europe was say, actually, no, there's a difference. There's this taxonomy of human being. There are different races. And these different races mean that it's not just one human race. There are subhuman parts uh, of of the world, and that's why we can do these things. Um, so that's like a pretty profound trying to make yourself feel better to to warp even the your own religious teachings. That in itself is again one of those questions that's really hard to answer when we know that all religions are rooted in compassion and mercy and equality, and just seeing the politicization of religion and the weaponization of religion used to justify the harm. It doesn't make sense. You mentioned zero-sum theory in economics and how you working in economics as an expert, even before the 2008 recession mm -hmm. and seeing how things were going, if people in that space know that this is a myth, then why does it seem like the policies and the actions and even just the education around economy for mm -hmm. communities other than the dominant culture and even within the dominant culture, why does it just seem like they reinforce mm -hmm. something that they know as to, to be as myth? Mm. Such a good question, Noor. Um, yeah, there's a moment I recount in the book where it was really an aha, and it was in when I was really thinking about 
climate change and how we obviously need to transform our economy and the way that we use and produce energy. And I, you know, I'm looking at all of the different ways that in fact, transitioning to an innovative, clean energy system could be like a win, win, win across our economy. Right. And yet I'm seeing all this resistance from some of the same sort of conservative actors who otherwise, whenever we try to do a public interest thing, like say we need to regulate things or we need to have, you know, more benefits for people who are struggling in poverty or whatever it is, they say, oh, no, 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 the economy, the economy, the economy, right? <laughs> um, yeah. That's going to cost jobs. And then you say, well, actually, there are more people working in solar and making higher wages now. This is a, a brand new um, uh, data that is showing now people in solar are making higher wages than people in, in fossil fuel industries. And so you're like, wait, 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 using using the, the metrics that you just used to try to defeat public interest things, the economy, right? This is good for the economy. And then that's when I realized Actually, they're not really talking about the economy as in the gross domestic product, the sum total of our goods and products and services. They're actually talking about their economy. And by that, they mean their place in an economic hierarchy. And so it doesn't really matter. It really is about justifying a position in a hierarchy. And and what's so important for me to really keep sight of and and to share with people whenever possible is that racism has a cost for everyone. And there's a very narrow set of people for whom it can, racism can be used as a, a, a political weapon and an economic weapon to keep the economic and political status quo, um, to divide uh, people who have really common problems so that they're too weak to seek out common solutions that might change the distribution of power in our society. That's really what racism has been used for throughout American history is this divide and conquer. And yet the only people who really benefit from it are not the you know millions of people who hold racist beliefs who sort of buy racist beliefs but the people who really benefit from it are the people who are selling them for their own profit right selling those those racist ideas for their own profit that's who's really benefiting um from a people who are so divided that they can't come together to just solve basic problems for one another can you tell me about a time in your life when you felt the impact of the aha moment that you just described and realized that there was this not so secret secret that people mm -hmm. just need to know so that they can make better choices for themselves. In the wake of the financial crash of 2008, I was running the Washington office of the think tank that I started working at when I was 22 that I would ultimately become president of. So this was 2009, 2010, 2011, and um, we were part of a coalition that was trying to revive the idea of public standards, safeguards, rules, and regulations on big corporations to make sure that they weren't poisoning us, overly polluting, that they were, you know, obviously issuing financial products that were safe, which they hadn't done uh, before the financial crash and all of that. And it was just this sort of general campaign. We were called the um, Coalition for Sensible Safeguards. 
and sounds like a superhero team right (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) it's actually just a bunch of nerds but we were very (laughs) earnest and really trying to make sure that you know there were enough like inspectors at factory farms and you know things like that um and um I remember, you know, the thing, there was this big push and it was actually a bipartisan push to deregulate further, to say that regulations were costing the American economy and that if we would just sort of unleash business, then business would create more jobs. And so we did this whole study to show that, in fact, the benefits of regulations and rules far outweighed the costs. And if you kind of calculate the real costs of pollution, the real costs of, you know, accidents and disasters and, um, you know, food safety recalls and car recalls and all these things that happened when you don't have good rules and standards in place. It was so much more inexpensive and sort of economically efficient to just put the good rule there in the first place to prevent, you know, these, these huge spiraling costs. And I just remember, like, being in a congressional hearing, presenting this evidence and having the lobbyists from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the um, National Federation of Independent Businesses, all these business lobbies, they just, it just didn't matter, right? They, it, it just wasn't like they had done this whole cost benefit thing. And then we had showed them that the cost benefit rationale was in our favor. And then they just switched to a whole nother rationale right then it was about like free speech for business and you know it was just like wait what happened i thought you said it was supposed to be so they weren't about telling the, the truth about something no they weren't telling the truth they were looking for a rationale to justify you know them being able to do whatever they wanted no matter what the cost to the rest of the public you've called the deregulation during that time a wild west yep Unchecked greed, um, racism as a sort of targeting mechanism for greed, right? Like how do you, if you're a greedy person, um, how do you get away with it in your own morality, right? You, You prey on the people that you've already cut off that tie of empathy with. If you're a greedy person, how do you get away with it by, you know, assuming that there won't be accountability, that people in power won't stop you from doing it and won't hold you accountable after you do it? racism right you you choose the communities and target the communities that are the least protected and least respected by lawmakers so racism and greed go hand in hand um did you feel defeated did you feel shocked (laughs) were you surprised what was going through your mind and your heart after that it's definitely the the issue that i've worked on um that was the most dispiriting um that still is pretty emotional for me now um I tell a story in the book about um, a visit I took with some advocates to Cleveland in 2007, really at the peak of the housing bubble, but where because these kinds of black neighborhoods that I was in were targeted much earlier, the wave had already crested and crashed and the block I was on was just dotted with foreclosures and... Um, I just had a deeply emotional reaction, a feeling of total grief, um, where, you know, I was sort of listening to this presentation by these advocates about how families on this block, you know, most of whom were first time home buyers, you know, 10, 20 years earlier 
had built up a little equity and then they started getting knocks on the door and incessant rings of the phone offering to refinance their mortgage loans. And it turned out that the mortgage loans were, were predatory, were too expensive, lots of hidden fees and costs, high interest rates that had nothing to do with the credits worthiness of the borrowers. It was just about how much they could get away with, how much the lenders right. could Which get away with. Which most of those borrowers actually did have good credit, right? That's right. That's right. In fact, up until 2007, this was a big story in the Wall Street Journal, um, most of the subprime loans that are supposed to go to people with sub, below, prime, like, you know, excellent credit, um, actually went to people with prime credit scores. And really, it was just about aggressive marketing and deception. And the communities that they targeted first and worst were black communities. Black and brown borrowers were three times as likely as white borrowers with the same credit histories to receive these kind of subprime loans. And so that day, um, the neighborhood was called Mount Pleasant in Cleveland. I remember I was walking, I was listening to the advocates, and then it just, it just kind of overwhelmed me and I and I excused myself really sort of hastily and ran around the corner out of sight and and I remember I fell to my knees on somebody's lawn and I was just sobbing it just felt like you know I'd been working on this issue now for half a decade and seen how much the people in power just didn't care and they and they just really assumed that that black people were poor and would always be poor and that they shouldn't really have had houses anyway, right? This sort of old belief that black people and brown people are bad with money, which is sort of a tidy justification for denying them ways to obtain it. And I just, um, you know, there's also this level of grief of, you know, particularly when it comes to black people and property, this idea that our ancestors were treated as property and we were denied the right to own property for most of the 20th century. All of the subsidies and ways that the government helped tens of millions of white Americans gain home ownership, not because they were, you know, credit worthy or had a lot of savings or were rich, but because they were people. And that's what the government thought should happen is that it would be good for the economy if people owned homes and yet they drew lines around all of the black neighborhoods in the country and said to lenders, do not lend. If you lend in these neighborhoods, we will not backstop your loans. We will not subsidize all of the tools that the government used to make the American dream of homeownership possible from the 1930s to the 1970s were excluded in black people. Um, but what they would have benefited from that, though, like it would have been beneficial to the economy. Yes, that's the thing. That is um, really the short sightedness. It's the way in which, um, you know, this this us versus them mentality, this exclusion. Do you think they believed that it wouldn't benefit them? Did yes. they really believe the us versus them? How? Absolutely. Because, well, the, the logic of redlining, this is the practice that I'm talking about. It's called redlining. Mm -hmm. um, they would draw lines around communities of color and, and red lines and say, do not lend here. Or they, they would give it a grade that was, you know, hazardous. And it was based on this perception of risk. That was the argument. The argument was these people, because they're black or um, sometimes new immigrants, but they sort of quickly dialed up the rating for new immigrants um, over time, um, 
were bad credit risks. And so the idea was if banks lend the money, if we if the government subsidizes housing developments in this area and lets these people have them, then it's an unwise risk because just because, right? It was actually never so based substantiated. On no proof. No right. proof. No proof. Um, there's a beautiful book that folks should know about called The Color of Law um, by Richard Rothstein, which really tells the story of how government segregated America by design and tells this whole story. And it's really, I, I talk about redlining a lot in The Sum of Us because I don't think you can really understand what we just see driving through neighborhoods in this country without understanding how segregation was explicitly done and and strategic disinvestment of communities of color was was government policy it wasn't just like oh it just sort of happened this way i can't even imagine how emotional that is because i mean what an overwhelming feeling of not being able to control the situation yeah yeah it was definitely helplessness yeah hi there If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. I think a lot about the choices we actually have, the choices we actually can make. And whenever it comes to what the solutions for these problems actually look like. And I know in your book, you talk about that this situation, alleviating this theory and really fixing our country of racism, our economy and so forth has to happen on a national scale. It has to be through, yeah. led through policy. But before we go into that, our listeners, what choices can they actually make? And this is for people of the dominant culture and people of subcultures in America. For both of those groups of people, what can they actually do? So... The lesson that I try to impart throughout the Some of Us is that the most powerful thing you can do is something that you do together, is linking arms and joining up in collective action. I think oftentimes, I'll I'll just speak for myself, growing up, you know, I was born in 1980, so I grew up in, in an era where it was just all about what I could do. Like, I, 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 right? Like, you go to school, you accomplish this, you do this, you know, it was just so sort of individualized. And ultimately, the most important things that really matter in society, we have to accomplish together. Like, I can't clean up the air in my neighborhood. I can't fund my kids' school better. I can't, um, you know, eliminate student debt. I mean, I can, you know, pay off my student loans, but I can't make it uh, disappear for the entire country. I can't refund public college so that it's debt free the way it was for my parents and grandparents generation. Um, you know, I can't solve climate change on my own. Um, no matter how much I recycle or turn off the lights behind me, it's not gonna, you know, eliminate greenhouse gases. <laughs> greenhouse oh my gases God. I in the atmosphere, you know. The documentary Sea Spiracy. Oh, I've and not seen it. it's a new documentary on Netflix. 
it's about the sea, it's about fishing, and it's about climate change. It's a must watch, but just adds to what you were saying. We can't do those things alone. Mm-hmm. That's right. Can't happen. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, it's it's really about joining together to solve big problems in your community. And whether that's um, affordable housing, which is an issue that people have really begun to, to find the sort of local levers about um, protecting the right to vote, ensuring that there are good, you know, vaccine equity programs, after school programs, you know, something that is about enhancing the quality of life of your neighbors and our people. And I think one of the silver linings of this pandemic period has been that people have really jumped into mutual aid and Mm -hmm. recognize that actually we can just do it, right? We can just set up a system where we deliver food to our neighbors. We can just set up a way to, you know, have a community pantry. We can, you know, use Nextdoor and all of these other apps to be able to know who our neighbors are and to do things together. And then, of course, you know, there's the the major thing that people can do, which is to, you know, fiercely reclaim our shared history, um, which is something that's really been robbed from us. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a study a few years ago that showed that only 8%, 8% of high school seniors could name slavery as a primary cause of the Civil War. Now, in America? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, in, all of in America. In America. And, you know, so well, right? I mean, and that's because there's been there was this whole southern strategy of rewriting the story of the Civil War to make it about civil rights and heritage and tradition, right? Like these really vague nonsense things that people wouldn't go to war over, right? Like, you know? So remembering your history, learning your history, I wrote The Sum of Us in many ways to be a book that can sort of use a thematic argument about the zero sum and our collective costs to kind of weave together some of the most important things that I think you need to know as a person in, in this country to be able to not be surprised when, you know, the same kind of manipulative forces come, you know, for example, I I finished the book in November, so January 6th, and that deadly insurrection uh, on the Capitol where a mob tried to take over the government and uh, undo the certification of, of an election. Um I, of course, didn't include that in the book because I finished writing it in November, but I did include a story of one of the largest um, massacres in in America, race massacres in America, which was in Colfax, Louisiana, in the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, where a white mob charged the courthouse where election results were being certified uh, of a candidate who won with a sort of multiracial coalition of voters, black and white, And this white mob refused to let the election results be certified. So um, a group of hundreds of black people defended the courthouse. Uh, They were killed and the the courthouse was burned to the ground. And that happened 130, 40 years ago, right? And so if you don't know your history, 
And if you don't know that when the president of the United States says that an election was stolen, that that is going to incite that kind of reaction and that that is, you know, a very near experience that was permissible and in fact, you know, never really, people were never held accountable for it. Then, then it's January 6th, you wouldn't expect, you wouldn't see it coming. But those of us who are students of history saw it coming, saw that that was the, right. the likely outcome. And that's why it's so important that we, we know our history. Sometimes even just thinking about knowing our history is overwhelming because it reminds us how young this country is. I hear historians and experts say the American experiment as if we are still in the experiment because we are still in the experiment. We aren't an old country and we're still trying to figure out if the way that we drafted up this idea of democracy is working for us. And we put that to the test every single day. The thing that keeps me up at night is the way that we were taught, the way our history was written, and the way that the media continues to share or cover stories when we were talking about the recession. I mean, I was in high school when that happened. And I remember all I heard was people who couldn't afford these loans were taking out these loans. People who couldn't yeah. afford these loans were taking out these loans. And I saw that in every story I read, every documentary, I, everything that I saw mm -hmm. perpetuated this notion that it was people of color's fault that yeah. this was happening and not yeah. a system. I see the textbooks in school that my siblings are using and they're the same ones that I use. They're mm. barely updated and so much is missing. I mean, I'm continuously learning about American history now as an adult because I need to for the work that I do and for trying to wrap my head around why things don't make sense. So what role does systemic education play in this and what role does media representation of BIPOC communities, of different subcommunities in America play? in this problem. You're exactly right that everything we believe as people comes from stories we've been told. And so you do have to ask the question, who's telling the stories and what are the stories that they're telling? And a media analysis of how BIPOC communities are portrayed when it comes to issues of crime, issues of poverty is very damning. Um, that's why the organization that I'm on the board of, Color of Change, does a lot of work to help change the narrative about black people and black families and really exposes how crime shows like Law and Order and all of that really dis misrepresent the, the criminal justice system, um, how shows that are what I call crime porn, you know, that are just like completely 100%. focusing our attention and making us entertained by the idea of sort of rampant criminality. Um, and glorifying is, police in every single show. And glorifying police, glorifying police brutality and sort of roughing up suspects. And it's sort of like, you know, that's the, that's the good thing to do. That's the like, you know, tough guy or tough gal. Um, and then the way in which, you know, just down to your local news at night overrepresents black faces as criminal suspects and underrepresents white people as criminal suspects, right? Two thirds of the arrests in this country are white people. And you would never know that from the nightly news. You would never know that from this, this, this misrepresentation. Um, people in poverty are disproportionately um, represented as being black and brown when the largest group of the impoverished are white. 
And so it's these negative stereotypes that often create this sense that there's just something wrong, right? There's just something wrong with black and brown people as opposed to something wrong with the systems of inequality that are impacting us all. It's easier for us to blame people than something that we can't directly see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. We are the storytellers. We are the ones who are supposed to show you the thing that you can't physically see. And I say we as in like storytellers have that responsibility of showing you the picture or helping you be able to visualize something that's too big for our eyes to grasp. There's a lot of people who I think are working on not only education reform, but just revamping our education system and the stories that we tell our kids and and having more open conversations about the way that history is taught because we are realizing that the way history is taught in America is problematic because the biggest export that America has had from the beginning is the dream that is mm. metaphorical. And mm -hmm. it's the thing that has sustained us for so long. And I see that changing now because I even get people in war-torn countries who have literally said, I'm scared to come to America now. I was going to come to study here. I was going to come get a job here, but I'm too scared to because of our shootings and right. because of the racism. And so... I see the curtain being pulled back every single day. I wonder if people realize, if leaders, politicians, economists realize that the transparency that we need for racial healing, for our whole country's healing, mm. is mandatory in order to actually do something about it. And one of the conversations that my husband Adam and I have all the time is, if everything comes back to money, and we're talking about this greed, then is it possible to make peace profitable? Because we are a country, we sell weapons and we've engaged in multiple decade long wars. So based on your research and what you've seen, is it actually possible to make peace profitable for everyone? That's a really interesting question. I mean, so much of the dysfunction in our domestic economy is based on the fact that, you know, half of what we spend is just in this total black box of, of military spending that creates its own profit incentives, right? And so there is all this kind of investment in prevention, prevention of violence, prevention of hunger, pre prevention of strife domestically and abroad that is not being done because our current setup has really powerful entrenched people who profit from the war machine. And, and, and that is really, it goes back to this idea we were talking about before about, it's not just about how much money there is, it's, it's really in whose hands the money is. And so when you're arguing that there'll be more money to people who are saying, well, yeah, but it won't be in my hands, you, right. know, in the, you know, in this different system. That's where you're really sort of talking past each other. You, you know, you're trying to use economic arguments to win an argument that is really about possession and ownership. Um, and it's not about, you know, prosperity. That's a really amazing perspective. So for you then, what does your ideal America look like? <laughs> Such a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe that this country is so young. You know, there are so many societies that have so much more 
history they have to learn and and undo. Right. right? We are so young and we have so much, there's so much that has been sacrificed to create the wealth and and bounty of this country. Um, that I think we owe it back to the past to really make an idealized society here. We we have someone in the United States with a tie to every community on the globe, right? We are this nation of many nations. We are a place where we are neighbors. We are you know, co-citizens with one another, but, you know, ancestrally we're strangers to one another. And so we, we have to meet and, and create bonds based on things other than, you know, our backgrounds, our cultures, our tribes, right? It has to be based on ideals. It has to be based on what we do together in the present to one another and for one another. So I, I am quite patriotic, actually, despite it all, and, and quite optimistic about particularly, honestly, the youngest generation of adults impatience with the status quo and, um, you know, and desire to to really see one another and be welcoming and inclusive of one another in all of its great diversity, right? The the younger you go in America, the more diverse the generations become. And, And that's really about the fulfillment of this country's promise. Yeah. And the more awake, I'm a child of immigrants. Both of my parents immigrated here from Libya. And a lot of my friends, most of my friends, are also either children of immigrants or just people of color. And we have this conversation of our parents or our grandparents have come to this country and they were escaping war, dictatorship, poverty, whatever it was. And they came here to find a better life for us. But they kept their heads down and they were like, I'm not trying to engage in the thing that I was trying to run away from. I'm just trying to survive. And so many of us younger, whether it's millennial, Gen Z, whatever it is, have seen what it means to be American and to not feel like we should just be grateful to be here. But we also have a responsibility to expect more of America. It's like the James Baldwin quote. I criticize America so much because I love her so much. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You, and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at isyfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. You mention in your book so many different stories that I've never heard elsewhere. There's one that in particular that really stuck out to me in Lewiston, Maine, that I just thought was so beautiful. Could you share more about your experience going there? 
Yeah, I I went uh, a few times to Lewiston, Maine, which is a, a small city, you know, really a, a town um, in in South Central Maine. Maine is the whitest state in the nation. It's the oldest state. It's the state where the children are the least likely to share a classroom with a kid of color. Um, and so I wanted to go there to see kind of in that most unlikely place, whether or not my theory that we could unlock us, what I began to call these solidarity dividends, these ideas of these gains that we can only really achieve if we link arms together across lines of race, um, if we could have that even there. So Lewiston used to be this flourishing uh, manufacturing town with lots of mills and factories and like so many places across the country, um, you know, those days are behind them and they were losing population. The Main Street, uh, Lisbon Street is really, you know, it's been had lots of vacant boarded up storefronts for a long time. And yet I went and I took a walk down the whole sort of length of the main street from the old canal all the way through up to the city hall and really noticed that as it grew more um, populated by uh, the signs of an immigrant community, you had fewer and fewer boarded up windows and more shops and cafes. And there was this sort of sign of life. And I talked to the town administrator. It was not the elected mayor, but it was just a, you know, a city planner who kind of runs the day-to-day of the city. Um, his name was Phil Netto, and I went and sat with him in, in, the, in his office in City Hall. And he was just so animated and so excited about telling me the story of how new people, these new Mainers, had saved the city of Lewiston and had really turned its economic fortunes around, were renting storefronts in the downtown or renting apartments that had been vacant were sending their kids to school the soccer team was winning state championships they were building a new school because there was so much youth and population and how important that was to everyone it wasn't just great for the new people it was great because it meant that there were people and that meant that you could attract businesses and employers he said it was sort of a real vicious circle when the factories left and then the young people left and then no employers would want to come back in because you don't have people. And so right. these new Mainers had had really turned that around. And the thing is, nor those new Mainers in this super white state and town were black, African, mostly Muslim refugees and immigrants. And I talked to a bunch of members of the community who had both uh you know, new Mainers and old Mainers who had really found something in each other and had built something and had worked together, you know, really against the odds and against the, the, the teachings of the politicians, right? Because both the mayor of Lewiston, two mayors in a row, and the governor of Maine at the time that I was there were kind of Trumpy folks, right? They were very anti-immigrant, talking about immigrants, illegal immigrants, cheating welfare. It was like this whole sort of dog whistle kind of word salad of like, you know, resent these people <laughs> who are who are getting government benefits, even though you white Mainers are the ones who are really struggling, right? That was sort of the narrative. Um, 
and and it was a real competition, right? Because on the ground, in terms of local business owners and and these community members, they were really seeing that the new people were saving their town. And then, of course, the politicians were trying to divide them. And the story ends happily in the sense that, at least as of now, there's been a change in the politics. And the kind of temperature of the rhetoric has gone down. Um, a real multiracial coalition of organizers and just citizen activists um, in partnership with many of the real immigrant leaders in the community were able to win, for example, a, a ballot measure to overturn a five-time veto by that Trumpy governor, Paula Page. He vetoed healthcare expansion, um, really using kind of racist rhetoric about like it would go to help immigrants and it would go to help, you know, people who didn't deserve it. But they were able to win a ballot initiative that expanded Medicaid over the governor's veto, um, helping tens of thousands of Mainers. And it was like Somali taxi drivers picking up elderly white Mainers and bringing them to the polls. You know, it was that kind of real wow. cross-racial organizing. Um, and I think there are signs of it everywhere. In fact, I'm going to be doing a podcast later this year that that goes and just finds more and more of these stories of people coming together across lines That's of race. That's what we need. Yes, exactly. We need to see that it's possible because so yes. often, yeah, um, so often we are really um, just completely, all the storytelling is negative. Um, yeah. Right. How did you find this town in the <laughs> Um Well, I did a bunch of research for the book, right? I was, I, I was, um, how did I, I'm trying to think of when I sort of first came upon it. I think I first came upon it in a news story. It was probably a news article about what was going on. And then I dug around some more. I talked to the, the real way that I kind of unlocked the story. And this was really how I found most of the good stories in my book was through organizers. Um, I talked about how there had been that big, um, organizing effort to to win the ballot initiative and that was really anchored by this grassroots organization called Maine People's Alliance and so I I knew I know a lot of the grassroots organizations across the country um, through my work I've I've come to know them and know their leaders and so that was a huge piece of my research was basically just calling people up that I knew who were organizers and saying hey this is the kind of story I want to tell. Do you have any examples of it? And I was, Ooh. you know, overwhelmed by the response. You have to know people, right? You have to, you have to yeah. get to the ground. You have to know people, but you also have to know the story that you want to tell, which I really love that you said that as a part of your writing process, because I'm always very curious about people who write books that are so packed with research and anecdotes that mm -hmm. you read and you're just like, how did that person find that story? That's how I felt about several of the stories that you wrote about, which one tells me that you spent probably years working on this and also yeah, a lifetime about four of years. work to get to this point. Yeah, that's quite incredible. Can you actually share a little bit about what that process looked like for you and how it evolved the closer you got to the story you really wanted to tell? Yeah, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I did hear about it first from an organizer. Um, they invited me, Maine People's Alliance, um, actually asked me to keynote their speech, their fundraiser, their annual fundraisers, like five years ago. So I took a trip to Maine, and there 
you know, I gave a speech and one of the people who was getting an, a local award was this guy named Bruce Naughton, who was an activist. And, and the more I learned about his story, the more it was really clear that this is someone I wanted to include in the book because he's this sort of white middle-aged guy who, you know, could have really succumbed to opioids and uh, drug abuse, but he had really turned his life around. His wife said, you know, your new addiction, Bruce, is being in the community. And wow. he had really wow. found kind of a reason for living and a sense of purpose and drive by volunteering to to be an organizer in 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 town and um, do so in many ways in really close relationship with some of the the new mainers as they call them the the immigrant community and so the more i i talked to him and got his story the more i learned that he wasn't alone and he referred me to Another woman named Cecile, who had become this anchor in the in the refugee community because she had started a, a a francophone sort of French lesson program that really brought together francophone African immigrants with the French Canadian white senior citizens who had been immigrants, you know, generations before. Um, and it was actually the, the black folks who were teaching the white folks. And it's just this beautiful story. So I just kept sort of learning more and more. And then I learned about Mahmoud and Saeed and right and all of these people. And, and the stories just really kind of unfolded from there. Um, you know, but it, it also, you have to leave, leave room for the wrinkles too, right? I wanted to, it was so clear that this was a good news story. And yet it was a good news story against headwinds of xenophobia and racism and, and scapegoating. And so I had to include that too. You know, I remember talking to Ben Chen, who's one of the organizers with Maine People's Alliance who ran for mayor twice and, and kept, and he's um, half Chinese and half white. And he, you know, racist kind of fear mongering tactics kept making it hard for him to win. And he's like a really, tireless, wonderful, optimistic organizer. Um, but, he, you know, he was also very honest about the dynamics in the city and, and, and how even the, the story that the town administrator, Phil, told of it being just so economically beneficial for the town to have these new people. Ben said, if you're not three degrees of separation away from Phil, you don't know that story and you don't believe it. You, you, you're more likely to believe the, the kind of negative political rhetoric about immigrants being a drain on the town. So, you know, it's complicated. You have to include all of it, right? The good and the bad, the struggle and the overcoming. Those are the stories that honestly, I believe are confirming why the solidarity dividend that you're talking about, that term that you coined in this idea, is really the solution. I've been thinking about the solidarity dividend alongside something that you taught me, which you said in maybe passing, but has really stuck with me about white privilege and why when people get upset about someone saying that they have white privilege, it isn't because it's a bad thing and you shouldn't have that privilege. It's because that everybody should have the same privileges that you have. And that so-and-so person has it only on the basis of the color of their skin, but we should be striving for a world where everybody has the same privileges and the same opportunities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does the solidarity dividend in this utopia look like 
and the cost that racism has given to all of us, why does that save us from that cost and actually invest in each other? The solidarity dividend is the antidote to the zero sum, right? It's the it's what can replace the zero sum, the, the recognition that we truly do need each other and that, as I said, the best things in life are really not things that we can gain unless we come together and bridge the us versus them divides to have enough strength and numbers and enough power to take on concentrated wealth and, and power. And that's how we begin to see a way for people who are willing to cut off their noses to spite their face, are willing to go without just so that their fellow American and their fellow human being is also going without. Um, it's the idea that if, if we can have more experiences where people wake up to the potential of what we can do together, and reject the idea that we have to go it alone and that we have to see other struggling people as the enemy and resent them and, 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 and assume that they have bad faith and that they're cheating and trying to, you know, um, get something they don't deserve, right? All of these negative narratives. It's no way to live. It's no way to accomplish the important things we need to accomplish. And, and we don't have time, right? I mean, the big challenges that we face as a society the corruption in our democracy, economic inequality and poverty, climate change, like these all require big collective solutions. And we've we've simply got to come together and, and achieve them. And, and what I've been so excited to see just over the past three months with this new administration is that, you know, in ways that frankly I didn't even anticipate, they are in many ways rising to the occasion. The $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is a big refilling of the pool of public goods for everyone, right? It's it, We've been for so long this American jobs plan that's proposed, that's um, supposed to do trillions of dollars in investment in our infrastructure, in our public goods, and not just like the hard hat public infrastructure, but the, the soft public infrastructure, the human infrastructure, childcare, um, the kinds of work that, that makes all other work possible, as my friend Ai Jin Poo, who runs the National Domestic Workers Alliance, paid family leave, green jobs, um, public transit, affordable housing, cleaning up, ripping up every single lead pipe in the country and replacing it. I mean, that is what we need to do for our people. And we would not have had the chance to do that if it weren't for cross-racial organizing and a multiracial coalition that came out in record numbers. So I think we're seeing the solidarity dividend right now in real time. That gives me so much hope and I know so many other people so much hope. And you mentioned this past year in quarantine earlier and we've all had so much time alone, so much time with ourselves to think about what do we stand for? What are the things that we care about? What are the things that we're complicit with? etc. And we've seen brands and companies and organizations themselves take stances, whether it be them saying Black Lives Matter for the first time or committing to diversity and inclusion. And we see a lot of these things on the surface. And I 
do a lot of consulting work on the diversity and inclusion side. I kind of call it the diversity and exclusion side because mm. a lot of the efforts tend to be very surface level and their diversity for the sake of checking boxes off. But I've even personally experienced being brought in for taking off a box, but the skill sets and the value that I bring to this place are not being utilized in the way that would benefit myself and everybody. You write about this in a way that really hit me. So I wanted to read a little bit of your own writing to just give our listeners a reason to go buy the book, which this whole conversation should be. You write, the assumption behind diversity's benefits is the assumption that people of different backgrounds are meeting on a plane that is equal enough that they can all contribute and that they share the will to work together. If that can happen, then the benefits multiply. What we will have to overcome, however, is that gulf that exists between our people's basic factual and moral understandings of who we are as a society. It is a gulf that has been profitable for powerful people in media and politics, and we cannot bridge it if we do not acknowledge the truth of how we got here. That hit because it put to words this idea that even when I have had conversations with people at really big corporations about this, their efforts around diversity are gender-based and oftentimes stop there. And I realize that we are living on completely different planes of reality. We have completely different histories, completely different presence. And what you see as an accomplishment, I see as we should have been there already, but there's so much more work to have done. Mm. When you have conversations about the benefit of diversity what has to happen in order for that to work what are the responses that you get and where do you think most people are right now i think that most people are looking for answers um they're um i mean most what people right so i mean i think many people of color are tired emotionally depleted particularly you know i can speak the, with the most knowledge about my own community with you know a year of a pandemic that has cost so much black life and um where black people have been so disproportionately sickened and killed and so few people know someone you know don't know someone who was who was killed who lost their life due to the the negligence um of the administration for so much of the time of this pandemic and just the needless suffering um so i think that adding on to that a a welcome and and overdue joining by many white Americans into the cause of racial justice um, has been really welcome. And and corporations saying the right thing has been really welcome. But, you know, people don't want to have to be activists, right? They want to just get on with their lives. Um, yeah. And so there's, there is an exhaustion. There's definitely, I think, a palpable feeling of exhaustion and a feeling of we want people who are, you know, who are not as impacted emotionally directly um, 
to sort of carry this leg forward, right? So we want there to be more, um, I would even go beyond allyship and, and talk about co-conspiratorship. We want more people who are who are saying, all right, let me, let me carry this leg for you. Let me be the one to stick my neck out. Me, let me be the one to be um, more ferocious in this moment and tireless in this moment. Um, and I think that's really important. I also think that, you know, when it comes to, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with corporate leaders over the past year um, about their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And, and the fear that they have is that their white employees will see it through that zero-sum lens. We'll see that if they talk about having equity and more diversity in the top ranks, that is means, you know, their slot that they think is theirs um, by rights is, is going to I've literally to heard people say that. And I've heard people I was going to work with say, I'm just afraid my son isn't going to be able to get a job in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's going to have to compete in the same way everybody else has had to compete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is definitely this sense, this fear of losing status, fear of losing um the unhindered access to money and power um and that is that is a fear that that the right wing really plays on um and really gins up to that i would counter that yeah you know like folks may have to work harder um you know it's sort of an axiom that women and people of color have to work twice as hard to to get uh, half as much, and isn't that America though? Isn't that the <laughs> whole reason competition and working hard and establishing and building yourself? That's just always been so many of us' experiences. And I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say, but I'm so happy that I had to work as hard as I did. It doesn't mean I should have had to work as hard as I did because I've gone through some wild things, but I'm happy because I know that I have perspective and a skill set and ability and versatility in a way that so many people who I've worked with have never been put in a situation where they have to figure out who they are. That's what I keep saying to myself as a first gen Libyan American Muslim hijab wearing person. I have been forced to figure out who I actually am compared to who people want me to be because mm-hmm. I have been brought into spaces where people want me to be something that I'm not. And I have to ask myself those questions and I have to become more confident in my identity. And for the majority of white people in this country, they haven't had to reckon with who they actually are. It's just easy to fit in and be Mm. like your family members and be like your colleagues. You just never have to think too hard about it. I've been in my head so much and I've realized how is that group of people going to have that same mandatory challenge that you have to go through to really figure out who you are. And I believe that maybe this is it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is um, an invitation right now to white Americans and to men to to redefine what it means to be white, to redefine what it means to be a man, um, to redefine masculinity in a way that is not about status hierarchy. Um, and that's an exciting opportunity. Um, and, I, and I will say that 
this this system we have of this harsh inequality, um, of this needless suffering of, of poverty and people who, for whom they could, you know, have a carburetor break in their automobile and then lose their house because they can't pay their rent and then lose their child because they're homeless, right? I mean, this can happen. It happens every day in America, this sort of cascading of of small misfortunes that makes life so brutal that is a choice, right? In the American Rescue Plan, we included $300 a month checks for all families with children under a certain income threshold. And that means that childhood poverty is going to be cut in half. That reminds us that poverty is a choice. This society doesn't need to be as mean. We can have universal childcare and paid family leave and universal health care. We can have <laughs> a universal basic income. And if that's the case, we won't feel the need to compete with one another for scraps, right? There will be a higher standard of living for everyone. And it's also true that if we don't have these massive economic divides, our whole economy is going to be larger, right? Citigroup and McKinsey and the Federal Reserve Bank keep putting out studies counting and calculating the costs of our of our racial economic divides in the trillions and so there's so much potential so much kind of left off the field um in a society that that is has such a steep hierarchy of human value it's it's not the way we were meant to be it's not the optimal way to to run a society and and i do think that formula that zero-sum formula of racial hierarchy its days are numbered Mm. That's so great. It's so great that it's days <laughs> number. It's so great for all of us. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. Heather, thank you so much. This has Nor. been uh, yeah. so helpful. I have some not so rapid, rapid fire questions. Sure, sure. Let's do it. Before we head out. All right. What does your ideal writing day and writing space look like? Ooh, good question. Um so I had it a few times. I, you know, over the course of the four years I was writing the book, I had lots of different kind of days. But sometimes I had a setup where I would, you know, wake up, get my kid dressed and fed and out the door, and then go to this local black-owned restaurant called Peaches Shrimp and Crab, which is like a five-minute walk from my house, that inexplicably is open seven days a week. And during the week, it opens at 10, which is just like not that common for like, you know, a restaurant, right? That's mostly a lunch and dinner spot, mostly a dinner spot. So, but it opened at 10 during the week, had this like basically brunch five days a week. So I would sit at the corner (laughs) seat at the bar and the wonderful guy who worked there most days um, named E would you know have coffee ready for me i had the employee wi-fi i would sit in the corner seat at the bar i would order a big breakfast i love a big breakfast i would rather eat like one meal in the morning and then be done um so i'd order a big delicious breakfast and i would eat and i would have my laptop off out and i would just write and then i'd have like a you know like a salad or something for lunch but i would spend like five hours at this restaurant, you know, and it was just so fun because I felt like I was like treating myself, you know, and yes. I was like um, seeing people walk by and having chit chat with folks, but still writing. And then I, you know, I'd come home and work out and then pick up my kid. But um, that's kind of like the perfect day where I'm not totally isolated and alone, 
Um, I can still sort of look out at other people. I can have good food. And mm. Did you have headphones in while you were writing? Um, not usually. I don't have to have total quiet. In fact, total quiet doesn't work for me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wait, was there music <laughs> playing in the restaurant? Yeah, there'd usually be music playing in the restaurant, a little bit of, you know, chatter. But I was usually only one of like... 10 people in the restaurant on the course of the day. That's why it's so amazing that it even made financial amazing. sense for the restaurant. I mean, it's amazing for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I say wow like that because I am the total opposite with writing. I need my headphones in. I need to be listening to music. I love being in a restaurant or a cafe, but if someone interrupts me or distracts me, I have to like reset completely. Oh, yeah. Which is, oh, yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Maybe it's a mom superpower. Because you're, oh, yeah. you're able to like bounce around with different things. Fully compartmentalizing. Yeah, that's probably yeah. right. <laughs> I love it. What is your favorite book that you read during quarantine and what gift did it give you? Mostly during quarantine, I read books for my book, right? I read books that I was going to be referencing and that I was using for research. So, uh and probably so the, quite literally the, gave you a gift. Yeah, it gave me the gift of, you know, the footnote in my book, the understanding that I needed to write a chapter. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America is is really it's it's right now kind of my favorite book going. Um, amazing black historian and thought leader wrote this beautiful history of of that period of time. Um, where he coined such terms as the wages of whiteness, the psychological wages of whiteness that that white folks will will settle for instead of demanding higher material wages um, and lots of other big ideas. But I would say that that's the book, Black Reconstruction in America. Thank you. Favorite go-to song to dance to for joy? Um, I love The Best of My Love by The Emotions. Um, when I left Demos to write the book, when I left, I was running my organization, Demos, um, and I stepped down to write the book. My staff surprised me at our final fundraiser dinner with a lip sync video of <laughs> Best of My Love, which is pretty that's moving and heartwarming. So that's a big one. I love big disco songs. And then I love the song Moving On Up by Curtis Mayfield. I love it. I think I'm going to make a playlist for this podcast because I keep asking people and I just oh, want to do like smart. a whole joy playlist that so we can smart. have. I love it. Thank you. Sign me up. I got you. Who is your favorite writer of all time? Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a documentary that really changed the way you think about something. Well, I would say Eyes on the Prize, which I don't know that it changed. I don't remember what I thought before. Mm. But I watched it so young, right? It's the seminal PBS documentary about the civil rights movement. And it really, um, yeah, it was very affecting and really shaped my understanding of the world. Amazing. What's your idea of a good time? A party. I love a party. (laughs) I love throwing a big party. Ooh. Yeah. Do you throw them at your house? Yeah. Yeah. I did. I Yeah, I used to before the pandemic. I mean, we're almost there. Almost there. <laughs> and before Hopefully. before a kid, to be honest, I used to throw these massive parties. Um, what was your signature thing? 
Well, so they were called castle parties because the name, the sort of nickname for the house we lived in was this old limestone building in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, my roommate and I. And it was my roommate. It was a gay Russian Jewish guy and my one of my best friends who's a DJ. Um, the three of us would throw these parties together. And so it would draw from our different kind of worlds and it'd just be wow. this amazing mashup. And it'd be like 300 people, 400 people in this duplex um, inside and outside. And people would come in from the neighborhood and, you know, walking around the party, I wouldn't know 80% of the people there, but it was just always a fabulous time. And in the invitation, wow. I used to say, this isn't, this ain't no park slope party. Leave your strollers at home. So this is, you know, because I was in my 30s and there were lots of people who were kind of, you know, had kids and I was like, That's no, hilarious. this is not that kind of party. <laughs> wow. Well, I hope you get a chance to throw a great oh, big party me soon. too. Thank you. Yes. And finally, what mm-hmm. do you know for sure? That love is all that really matters. Mm. That's one of mine. I recently, in the last year, that was one of the things that I realized was at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters and isn't that the solution to everything? Yeah, it really is. It really is. Wow. Heather, well, I could talk to you forever. Um, (laughs) Thank you for your stories and for your wisdom and for your grace. I'm so appreciative of it and for your time. Thank you so much. All right, Norm. Be well, be safe. Take care of you and Thank yours. Thank you. For more Heather McGee, you can get her book, The Sum of Us, wherever you get your books. You can check out more on her website at heathermcgee.com, Instagram, Heather McGee, and Twitter, H. McGee. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, it is up on YouTube or Facebook, both slash nor. And to you, our listener, I want to thank you for your listen and support. I'd love to stay connected. Here are some ways I'm telling stories these days. You can text me if you are in the U.S. or Canada. Yes, it is me, not a bot. I also text you intentional daily questions of the day. My number is 301 346-8894. You can follow us on social, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube at Noor, and on Instagram at AYS. My Twitter, Snapchat, and Clubhouse is ntagori.